wait a minute. Don't I know you from somewhere? Yes. Yes. I'm George. George McFly. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. There now. Just relax. Yeah. Horrible nightmare. Safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955. Now playing is back to the future. It can't be done, can it? Continuing our retrospectives of movie series, we will be watching and reviewing all of the Back to the Future films. Hosted by Brock. He's a very strange young man. Arnie. He's an idiot. Comes from upbringing. Parents are probably idiots too. And Stuart. He's a real nutcase. If you hang around with him, you're going to end up in big trouble. These will be spoiler-filled conversations about the movies. So if you don't want to know the plots, then press stop now and play us in the future when you're done watching. My calculations are correct. You're going to see some serious shit. Today we're talking about Back to the Future. Starring Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, Thomas Elf Wilson, and directed by Robert Zemeckis. This is Barack. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie, and I guess we are overmodulating. Yes! <laughs> the whole <Great> podcast! <laughs> we will all talk like Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> Only we have to shout the whole time! Stuart, you're not in Hill Valley, you're in L.A.? I am. Is Hill Valley, California? Yes. I believe Hill Valley's California, but specifically Hill Valley is in L.A. as it's quite obviously a back lot. <laughs> well, yes, it is yeah. a back lot. I was trying to figure out because it's like October and there's no snow. There's no reference to Halloween even. I'm like, there. where in this country would it be sunny and there are valleys? I'm like, it has to be California. It has to be Southern California. I didn't realize that until this watching because I always wondered how the hell did they get out west for the third one? Did they go through space and time? But no, if they're in the west, yeah, California. And the real world answer is they filmed it in January through March or something. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so Back to the Future, it is one of, well, was one of the most popular series of all time. It was a theme park ride, had a cartoon. Was it one of the most popular series or was it one of the most popular movies that then spawned sequels? And that's a legitimate question. I think you're right, actually. I think the original is one of the most popular movies of all time, or it was anyway. I'm not sure if with the rankings already more. But I do think you're correct. It's not the kind of series you have to watch all three all of the time when you watch it. You can actually just watch the first one and not have to worry about the sequels if you don't want to. And the box office returns, Back to the Future 1 made well over $200 million. Back to the Future 3 didn't even make $100 million. So I'm thinking it may not be the most beloved series of all time, but everyone likes the first one. Well, perhaps we should talk about our experience with Back to the Future. I, I have not seen these movies since I first saw them in theater. So I can't, you can't call me a newbie, but I definitely feel like 
I'm coming to this as freshly as possible, even though, you know, obviously this movie was hugely popular and has infiltrated popular culture and everyone knows, you know, Marty and Doc. And at the time, I definitely felt like it was one of the best movies I had ever seen. 1985. No doubt about it. It blew me away. It had comedy. It had sci-fi. It had Spielberg in his prime. And it was playing with time travel, which was a concept that was pretty new to me at the time. I was a big fan of Doctor Who. And so I was already into the idea of traveling through time. This was the first movie that dealt with the subject that I think I saw. I saw Back to the Future, the original, twice in movie theaters, and I think once on video the next year. I saw Back to the Future 2 once in theaters, and I never even got around to seeing the third one. So at least one of these movies you were completely fresh on. Yes. Okay. Well, I guess I probably am the fanboy of the series of this group then. I never saw the Back to the Future original in the theater until about three or four years ago when they did it as an old movie revival in New York City. I saw Back to the Future 2 opening weekend, and like many, (laughs) had some choice words. But I did go back the following May to see Back to the Future 3 in the theater, and I did own all three movies on video cassette in the 90s. And so whenever I would watch Back to the Future 2, I immediately had to watch Back to the Future 3. It's kind of one of those things, even today, if it's on cable and I catch parts of 2, I have this urge, this need to watch 3. To me, they just go together. And I also have the 2002, I believe, box set of the trilogy, which has all these commentaries and behind-the-scenes things. And although I didn't get through them all for the preparation for this, I did get the chance to watch some of the behind-the-scenes things again. So yes, I guess I am the, the big fan of the series here. Yes, but did you eat the cereal, Brock? I did not eat the cereal, <laughs> but I have been known to occasionally have watched the cartoon series on, on wow. Saturday morning. All right. I did not really enjoy it. It really wasn't made for me. It really was geared to kids and it was kind of neat that they had Christopher Lloyd back as Doc giving the kids lessons in science and stuff. But yeah, mm. clearly by the time that was on TV, it was not for me. It was for the children. Yeah, so anyway, I've been on the ride, watched the TV shows, watched the movies to death. I guess I am the fanboy here. And I'm the one who listeners who love the Back to the Future series are going to want to string up by my toenails because <laughs> Back to the Future in 1985 – I didn't care at all. I loved Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties. I really did. I modeled my whole life after him. I even voted for a couple presidents because of his influence. It's true. But when that movie came out, I didn't care. And my cousins came to town, and I hated my cousins. And they're like, we're all going to go see this movie. I'm like, whatever. All right, we'll go. And I was blown away by it. Admittedly, I was 10, but I was blown away by it. Went to see Back to the Future 2 opening day in 89 and walked out thinking, okay, well, I'm sure it'll all pay off with 3. Watched both 1 and 2 on video, preparing for 3, and have not seen any of them since I saw 3 in theaters. I don't remember really having fond thoughts about the general series overall, specifically the sequels. And so this was my chance to kind of revisit to find out if my hatred was justified and we'll find out if it was throughout this series. I did ride the Back to the Future ride, had a wonderfully scary experience as the door of the DeLorean flew open during the (laughs) ride. And I thought I was not only going to travel through time, but space as I flung out of the car. (laughs) That's really wow. funny to say that because when I went on the ride, I'm pretty tall, and they put me in the back seat of this eight-seat DeLorean thing, and the whole time it shook, I kept on hitting my head on the ceiling of the back of the car. So the first time I went on the ride, I did not enjoy it at all because I was literally shaken up by it. 
I was scared on that ride because I saw the door was open. <laughs> and I'm like holding on for dear life. And every time it went left, which is where the door was, I was like gripped. It was interesting. Funny. And that's the thing, because this is coming from the era where you could actually make the movies into theme park rides but watching this movie again i never rode the ride but it makes you want to it makes you feel like you are i mean i totally get why uh, universal would spend the amount of money it takes to turn that into a franchise and uh, an amusement park ride because it is an incredibly rapidly paced movie that just is unrelenting and it's leap from a to b to z well, let's, let's get to talking about the movie then, because that's a great transition there. Because one of the strengths, I think, of this movie, the original Back to the Future, and I'd be surprised if it's not taught in schools, is the screenplay. This is pretty much screenplay 101 in that when you set something up in the beginning, it pays off at the end. And they do it throughout the entire movie in big things and small things. And yeah, sometimes you have a giant scene of exposition. I, I don't know. I think they're kind of great character scenes. I think it actually works when they give you the, the exposition. But everything pays off, and even little tiny things pay off. So the story is so well-crafted, and as you said, everything makes sense. One step goes into the next, it goes into the next, it goes into the next. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you here, because you're, yeah, go ahead. you're going off on too many things, and I disagree with all of them. You're kidding. No, I don't. Uh, I, this was my question for Stuart. Is Stuart, you're a writer. I agree with what Brock said, that every single line pays off, and that it's screenwriting 101, but I'd like to see screenwriters who actually got to screenwriting 202. Is this good writing? that every line has to pay off like this because when I watched this movie this time knowing that every single line pays off this whole movie just feels so crammed and so deliberate if you follow my meaning of that term that I couldn't tell is this considered good screenwriting or is this considered bad screenwriting because it felt a little TV movie to me I call it 80s screenwriting <laughs> I call it uh, Spielberg uh, influenced 80s blockbuster uh, screenwriting. It's certainly representative of an era. I mean, other eras have tried to emulate it, but I feel like this kind of writing was done best in the 80s. And I think it's a good example of that. It's certainly one of the most economical screenplays I've ever seen. I can't believe how much information is conveyed in the first half hour that they spin through the rest of the entire movie. I, I don't I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that juggles as many balls as this movie does and more or less keeps them in the air. There's one or two details that get dropped, but for the most part, I really think they do a very impressive job of juggling it. You asked me, I guess you're asking me my opinion of the movie. Do I think it's good writing? Uh, I think that it is really good once we get to the 50s. When the movie starts off, it starts off in a long shot, uh, speaking of economy, and, and this is sort of a Zemeckis trademark. Yes. He likes to get it all in one take, and, and usually it's at the beginning, but he has usually a big set piece crane shot that's going to tell you a lot of information very, very quickly. And this opening shot, um, it's an example of the economy of the screenplay. We're going to learn everything we need to know about the next half hour of the movie. It starts with shots of thousands of clocks. We're in Doc's, uh, you know, secret laboratory. It's panning through, and he's kind of got like a Pee Wee's Playhouse sort of setup where 
things are being made, breakfast is being made, the dog food's being opened, he has a dog named Einstein, but we've noticed that he hasn't been there in a while because these things are starting to pile up. Then the television comes on and there's a news report about stolen plutonium, and suddenly the door opens, we see feet in a skateboard, and it's the entrance of Michael J. Fox, and the skateboard goes rolling underneath, I think, a bed or something. A bed. And uh, it, we see the plutonium case. And we're sucked into the story instantly. And we're talking about in a matter of under a minute. All of this has been conveyed to us. And it's it's that kind of writing. So if you feel like it's crammed, if you feel like you're being rushed, you are. you got to keep pace with it. And it is definitely a style and a pace that reminds me of a lot of movies from the 80s that I enjoyed as a kid. And I have to say that on my first watching, I didn't notice all of it. I didn't pay attention to all of it. I've seen this movie so many times in the 80s, and even though I haven't seen this movie in well over a decade, I still remembered everything. And so watching it now, perhaps it just feels arduous to me because I know it all pays off, and it feels like every line is homework, from the line to how cool the truck is to the news report about the plutonium, how everything just... There's no Royale with cheese scene here, you know? what I mean? What the beauty of this movie is and why I enjoyed watching it over and over again when I was younger, when I was just getting into, you know, how movies are made and how movies are written and things like that is because everything pays off. Everything is there for a reason. And I think, sure, they cram a lot of things in. Stuart was absolutely right about the Rube Goldberg device and the plutonium under the bed. I remember the first time I saw the plutonium under the bed and realized, oh, that's where he kept it. That's where he was sleeping. I mean, I put everything together. And that's what's so much fun about this movie. You can watch it over and over again. And see those things. I don't think it's a bad thing to have all these things pay off. With all the bad screenplays that we've watched, and we actually talked about one of them in Friday the 13th Part 2, where they lay something so obviously in there, so it will pay off. This screenplay does so much and so much time, it's fun to watch. And you feel that you're actually getting involved with these characters, with these situations. Do movies have to pay off as much as this movie pays off? No. But most movies don't even pay off half as much. I, I disagree with your term pay off. It's, it's the fact is it feels like every line of dialogue is setting a domino in motion. It's not a payoff. It's a setup. It just ends up feeling, for me, like homework. It feels like there can't be any fun lines. They're, it's just all set up. And I just, I felt bad for the screenwriter who had to do this. And I can't decide if he thought he was crafting a masterpiece out of marble or if he was just trying to set everything up so that it actually had a reason for the inanity that happens later on. I can tell you the answer to that. He thought he was a genius because I listened <laughs> to some of the commentaries and he loves his screenplays. And I will agree with you that setup versus payoff, I will agree with you the setups are in the sequels. I think here it's more of a payoff situation. Maybe some of it's set up for a quick gag or something, but I will agree with that point in the next couple of podcasts. But here I, I still think it's a payoff. When they're talking about the clock tower at the beginning, that's not a payoff. That's a setup for the clock tower reveal later, but that's a one that's necessary. That's a plot setup. That's a plot point yes. that you have to set that up. Yeah. But by the same token, the line of how when the mother is discussing to her children who've presumably heard this story and they even say they've heard this story time and time again how she first met george mcfly it, it's so convenient she just happens to say that the night before marty travels back in time and that is not payoff that is set up because it's called way, exposition you know yeah. that it's called exposition to make the story work you need to have exposition scenes so the idea was to have this boring family life and it gives you the character's idea of what his life is now and how much he hates it 
and you get every character at that table gives you what kind of person they are, what their priorities are. You see the mother's an alcoholic. You see George's like given up on life. You have a brother who's a fast food guy. You have a daughter who can't get any dates. And you see Marty sitting there like, oh my God, this is my family. And yes, parents tell the same stories over and over again. It's like people were calling their football stories their glory days back then. And that's the only story she has worth telling. I don't know. Hey, Michael Bay did the same thing in Armageddon. I'm not going to call it art. Okay, but I think the difference between exposition and setup, paying it off later on, is part of what exposition does. I call it a payoff because it's satisfying to the audience when you get to the 50s, and since you know the story and how it's supposed to go and see how it derivates, you can go on the story and feel like you're Marty or be with Marty on his journey trying to fix his existence. And why wouldn't I want to know that information up front? I think it's fun to watch. I think it was written in a lazy way. There's too much exposition. You know, too much is just said through dialogue that is unrealistically compact. Well, here's the thing. I'm hearing two things, and I'm kind of agreeing with both of them, but I'm weighing a little bit more here with Brock, Arnie, in that I do think it's not lazy writing. It's it's very good writing, but the challenge of having such a layered, exposition-heavy screenplay, a one in which there is no stale lines and no dull moments, is you have to make it fun. And this becomes more about directing and acting choices. What I think I hear you're saying, Arnie, is that it feels labored, it doesn't feel lighthearted. But this kind of writing is really representative. I would go all the way back to the 1930s and screwball comedies. I mean, the thing about comedy is pacing. It's timing. Fast, 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 fast. And this movie churns it out. And I think my problem with the intro, the, the first 30 minutes I, I hinted at, is that it really feels, and I mean this in a negative way, 1980s. <laughs> it, it really it feels like a twisted sister video. The character, the way that Marty McFly has been written is a little over the top for me, and he's not entirely relatable. He wasn't when I was a kid, but coming back to this now, I feel like if there was one thing that they really probably could have cut, it was seen after we see the skateboard roll up to the plutonium. Marty proceeds to plug in an electric guitar, put on shades, and do a big 80s music video thing by standing in front of a, a guitar amp, which I don't understand why anyone would ever do that. I don't know why Doc has it in his <laughs> laboratory. I don't know why Marty comes over to play guitar at Doc's place, but it's all there just to be because in the 1980s, if you played electric guitar, that meant you were cool. And if you wore sunglasses, that means you're even more cool. And if you play a guitar in your sunglasses so loud that it blows up a house, you are the coolest. And I just think that that is a sentiment best left in the 1980s. Returning to it now, it really was kind of a groaner. And I know that they're setting up for the fact that he is a guitar player and will play guitar at a pivotal moment in the 1980s. 1950s, but you get that when he auditions his band. I really think that if, if there's one thing I could just wish I could cut out, it was the f- idea that Michael J. Fox is a rocker. Because you know what? Michael J. Fox is not a rocker. <laughs> I think I could agree with that. And they kept insisting on it. There was a movie later in the 80s. Do you remember this? He did a like a hard rocking movie with Joan Jett. 
Light of Life Day. Day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, which was originally written for Bruce Springsteen, and then when he read the script, he's like, I ain't doing this. But <laughs> but I'm like, well, okay, you can't get Bruce Springsteen. Let's get Michael J. <laughs> no, no, I don't understand this. But we're getting into my my troubles with Michael Michael J. Fox in the lead of this movie, which I'll give the floor to someone else before I go there. Well, you insinuated this, and this is my question: is yes, why are Doc and Marty friends? If Doc is not a creepy molester, why is he hanging out with this high school kid who can't even drive a car? It is one of the things that is not explained. In a script that makes sure to hit all of its marks and explain everything about itself, it's the one major plot detail, I feel like, that goes unexplored in, in I believe, all three movies. We never really find out how Marty and Doc come together, except that Doc must know that in the future he has to become friends with Marty if he wants things to unfold the way that they are. But, and we're going to talk a lot about time travel, but per the rules of Back to the Future, the Doc when this movie starts doesn't know he had to do that so they had to be friends somehow and what i think that whole guitar scene is doing is telling us why they're friends is marty likes doc's big speakers I think that's what they're, yeah, that's what they're doing, though. Grown! Yeah, that's the only thing they can give us is that. And apparently Doc also makes ukulele-sized electric guitars, because Michael J. Fox is a slight man, but that was a tiny guitar in that opening scene. Mm. But you're absolutely right. It's not in this movie. And I think, I never really missed that, but I see the point is... If everything else is explained, why isn't that? It's a fantastic point. (laughs) More importantly, wouldn't Marty's parents be a little concerned that he's hanging out with this creepy old dude and his dog? No, I don't think so at all because the parents are set up the way they're set up. They have their own problems that they don't really care. That's what I at any, at any rate, it, it definitely is something that stuck out to me in this viewing. And I guess you're right. The rock air scene is meant to be funny and it's yep. meant to to entertain children and in some thin way explain the friendship of Marty and Doc and a reason why he came over there that morning, which if you have to go to school, I don't know why you would go there. But he's late for school and then we see him skating through town and it's a nice, very set up about everywhere that we're going to see in the main town of hill valley he's only in that house for like five minutes the clocks are 25 minutes slow and he's late for school does he have no concept of time before he walked into the house apparently not maybe he set his watch to those watches before there is one clock on the floor i think near the bed that has the actual time and the other thing is we see michael j fox hanging on the back of bumpers with the skateboard (laughs) didn't that like kill some people weren't people emulating that in the 80s and like some people died I i seem to remember that this always seems to happen is that, yes, people see uh, something in popular culture and then want to emulate it and get hurt. Jackass being the most recent example I can think of. Uh, probably. I mean, I know I wanted to do it. It was catching the skateboard trend right as it was about to hit. This movie was right on the cusp of that, actually, because I don't think skateboarding was particularly cool until this movie came out. And then everyone I knew was reading Thrasher magazine. Hell, I had a skateboard. Yeah. I think they had a Back to the Future brand skateboard, if I remember correctly. Hell, this movie's all about the tie-ins and the product placements. I have a list here of the product placements in this movie. And, uh, yeah, so I wouldn't doubt that they'll merchandise anything. I do not remember movies 25 years ago having so many product tie-ins as Toyota, Zales, Mountain Dew, Pepsi, Pepsi Free, Calvin Klein. Burger King. I can explain all of that for you if you actually want an explanation on it. 
the reason there's so many brand names in this movie, and a lot of them were not, we have this product we made a deal with, now put it in the movie. The reason there's so many brand names in this movie is one of the great ways to show time travel is by logos. It's so Texaco had a different logo in the 80s than it did in the 50s. Pepsi had a different label, et cetera, et cetera. I learned this by, of course, researching the movie. Oh, um, yeah. Th- so that is why. But Ray-Ban sunglasses, as you noticed in the, in the first scene with the speaker, that's the only time we see him with those sunglasses at all. That was a promotional tie-in. Later in the movie, you see this completely random California raisins on the side of a bench where the bum is way, way late in the movie. And there's a story behind that. But that's one of the stories of they cut a deal with California raisins, put it in the movie somewhere. So wow. and, and there's a whole other story beyond that that I'm not going to get into. I hope California Raisins didn't pay too much money because I, I totally missed those. You'll also notice that when this opening scene with Marty going through this town, it's a great – you talk about setup, Arnie. Well, that's setting up the entire town for yeah. what, was, what will change in the 50s later on. So what's one of the fun things, of course, people talk about this movie and how things change. The soda fountain in the 50s is now an aerobic studio in the 80s. And it's kind of fun to see through the passage of time and all that kind of stuff. Texaco is still in the same place. It's just not the same kind of Texaco. And they do it again later in the sequence, too. Yeah, they needed to do that. And I think it serves them very, very well. We need to understand the town very, very quickly if we're to be impressed with how different it is in the 50s. And they do that. Getting back to a point that I, I hinted at before, though, Michael J. Fox is really being cast. You know, he's late for school. The principal grabs him by the ear. You're never going to amount to anything. His band doesn't make the tryouts. We're really meant to see him to be a rebellious figure. It's totally in opposition to the way I think of Michael J. Fox, who was <laughs> a slick capitalist. How do I make money suit? How do I fit in in family ties? He wasn't the original choice for Marty McFly. Yes, he was. He wasn't the original person cast, but he was the original choice. He was the original choice. They couldn't get him, so they cast Eric Stoltz, and they did about two or three weeks of shooting, and they had to let him go. And then they got Michael J. Fox? Yeah. Yeah, they, they went back to the producers of the TV show and said, listen, we tried somebody else. It's not working. We need to have Michael J. Fox. And I actually feel a little bad for Michael J. Fox because the Family Ties wouldn't let him out of any shooting for Family Ties. So he'd work on Family Ties all day, then shoot Back to the Future all night and all weekend and get like two hours of sleep. Oh, boo-hoo. I feel so sorry for Michael J. Fox that he had to go to work and get all these millions of dollars and become very famous in 1985. Boo-hoo, Michael J. Fox. I'm sure it was a hectic couple months, but obviously it made his entire career. Uh, My question is, yeah, I knew that about Eric Stoltz. I thought he was the original choice. I thought Michael J. Fox was a last-minute sub. Like, they couldn't find who they wanted, so they went with this guy. But you're telling me Michael J. Fox was always thought of as the the lead for this movie. Yep. Yes. And Family Ties just wouldn't let him out because Meredith Baxter had a baby and they couldn't have two cast members gone. Wouldn't you have rather have seen someone a little bit more edgy? Well, here's the thing, though, is he's supposed to be, I guess, rebellious, but also he needs to be relatable to the clean-cut 1985 audience. You don't want to get somebody who's truly edgy in there, you know? No, I agree. And he's got to, yeah, I mean, he's got to be a comedic actor, too. I was thinking Robert Downey Jr. I know he had only done Weird Science at that point. But a Robert Downey Jr. would have made more sense to me. Someone with just a little bit more... 
I don't know, grit. You know, someone that you believe is a real problem, kid. Michael J. Fox in this movie does a lot of reacting, and his and he's very good with the comic timing. I always like Michael J. Fox's timing. You didn't necessarily need somebody like that because you have someone as boisterous as Doc with his gigantic arm movements and his bulgy eyes, and you have Crispin Glover also with the dramatic arm movements and large-in-life character. To have someone grounded like Marty is, I guess you can call it, for lack of a better word, kind of like the straight man, you know? Kind of like yeah. the quote unquote normal person. And of course, he has his chance to react with his great, he does these great looks with his eyes throughout the movie, and it's really kind of fun. Well, the other thing is, I never really thought of Marty as the bad kid so much as I thought of as him being picked on. I kind of thought the school principal was picking on him, and he was just in a bad way. He wasn't a bad kid. He was just in bad situations. I never got any hint of rebellion from him. He was in a band. Who wasn't in a band? Stuart, you and I were in a band, you know? (laughs) (laughs) What was the band called, guys? Prism. (laughs) It was the 80s. Anyway, I I hear your point, Arnie. I guess it's valid. And it's not like it was a real problem with me. It was just that I kept processing that everyone was making this kid to be worse than he really was. And I guess when you think of it as being picked on and not unfairly singled out, and that's certainly how his father was as well. And it's sort of the legacy of the father being a weenie passing on to his kid. I guess that works for me. But I liked Michael J. Fox back in the 80s. And so I had no problem with it watching it then. But looking at it now, I'm like, wouldn't you have wanted a, a, a stronger rebellious figure, someone that wasn't, uh, uh, you know, a, a kowtow capitalist. You know, if the only problem you have with him is the baggage you're bringing from family ties, I think the trade-offs, because Michael J. Fox is really good in this. He pulls everything off. There's uh, one scene where he and Crispin Glover are next to each other and, like, doing the exact same movements. Mm-hmm. And it just yep. it, it worked very well for me. And honestly, throughout the whole movie, he was one of the best parts, and I never had a problem with Michael J. Fox in this movie. So I I, I'm talking I'm, I'm Talking only about casting. No, I think Michael J. Fox is in rare form here. I don't think he's ever had a bigger role. I don't think he's ever been better. And I think I can certainly see why you would get rid of Eric Stoltz. Uh, poor Eric Stoltz, by the way. Yes, uh, who's, had, who's had nothing but a career of also Rands as being the star of Fly 2 and the John Hughes movie no one saw after Pretty in Pink called Some Kind of Wonderful. But uh, Michael J. Fox is, is excelling here. Doc is big. Chris and Glover is big, and he plays off of them very, very well. It would be very hard to be the star of this movie and not be upstaged by those two performances, and and Michael J makes you still pay attention to him. So, uh, no, I want to make sure that you understand my, my comment was about the casting. It was not about the performance. The performance is very good. Speaking of good performances, perhaps you want to talk about Doc at this point, and I think the two of them work really well together, and I think that, especially as I watch it over and over again, I just keep noticing different things that Christopher Lloyd does. There's one scene when Lorraine in the 50s goes to follow Michael J. Fox's Marty McFly home. And if you watch Doc in the background, he's doing so little but doing so much at the same time. And I always like to watch Doc and see what he's doing, even when he's not the focus of the scene. Although typically when he is in the scene, he becomes the focus of the scene because he's so wild and crazy. But I always enjoyed his performance. And he was bordering on almost too much. 
but I don't think in this movie he ever goes too much. You know, here's the thing about Christopher Lloyd. I used to be a barometer for me. Like, if he was in the movie, I don't want to see it. And that's certainly true of anything after Adam's family. You know, I associated him with my favorite Martian or all these god-awful... If you ever go to SeaWorld, I defy you to sit through their 3D movie in, about a haunted lighthouse that he's in. It's got some of the most flabbergasting, awful acting and scary scenes I've ever seen. Anyway, the point is, he had become such a ham in the last couple decades, it was nice to go back and see how it was effective. I don't think that he's ever given a different performance. He's always been sort of this manic, big performer, and I never watched Taxi. I can't compare it to what he had done before. This is my introduction to Christopher Lloyd, Back to the Future. But it really works here. I'm going to counterpose that. Uh, as Professor Plum in the Clue movie, he was very low-key, almost to the point you almost forget he's in the movie. And the same thing in Dream Team, he was very low-key. Now, I also dislike him a lot. I have never seen a movie where he didn't make it a little worse for me. When Christopher Lloyd is at his best, he doesn't make a movie worse. When he's at his worst, he takes the movie down with him. Having seen most of his oeuvre, this is his singular best performance, (laughs) and I don't think he elevates the movie in any way. He's a ham. He's trying to show up everyone around him. But in this case, it works because this movie is almost at times a cartoon made real. And he is one step away from just having a black outline around him. I completely disagree with you. I think his performance really elevates the movie to something different. He is very over the top, and that's the whole point. He's the mad scientist in this movie. The fact that we care about this mad scientist, his character isn't one note of, I'm crazy scientist! But he actually has, you know, something more to it. It's something to do with him, not just the writing of the character. You you cared about this character? I've seen this movie, like, probably 20 times in the 80s, and never once did I care about Doc. I care about Marty. I care about George. I care care about Lorraine, but never once did I care about Doc. Doc was always a means to an end in this movie, in my opinion. Never was he truly a character to give a damn about. Yeah, there's the thing in the beginning where he gets shot, and at the end, Marty's trying to save his life, but that was just plot inertia for me, and I never cared about that character. You care about him because Michael J. Fox cares about him. I I agree. We don't have a lot of time with him and only him, and I think it's okay that we don't have a lot of his backstory. We know that he had a mansion that was demolished and that it exists in the 50s, but other than that, he's only defined really by his science throughout the entire movie and his friendship. I don't know. It sounds like you just weren't in the spirit of this movie, and his performance is clearly in the spirit of this movie. It's big. The movie's big. It's over the top. Perhaps it's brilliant. In this context, I would say in in a lot of Christopher Lloyd movies, it does work against him. But here, I went with it. I have no problem with it. I thought it was an interesting choice that they never decided to put age makeup on him. He is performing in exactly the same outfits and look uh, in the 1950s that he does in the 1980s. He actually has age makeup on in the 80s. Are you serious? It, I'm deadly serious, and you can I'll tell you where. You can tell the age makeup. It's, this is only because it's 1985, and this is the technology then. And I thought most of the age makeup worked pretty okay. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit dated. <laughs> dated, we're talking about time travel. You could always tell on the neck. You could see it on Strickland's neck. You could see it on Biff's neck, and you could see it on Doc Brown's neck. In the close-up shots, it really pulls and tugs at the end. And so, and you see him in the 50s, and I'll guess we'll talk about this in the second movie. The reason to give him a facelift in the second movie is so we don't have to wear the old age makeup the entire two sequels. I noticed in the hair, his hair was a lot thinner in the 80s. 
I have to say, though, I thought the old age makeup worked really well. You look at Thomas F. Wilson, who played Biff. Mm-hmm. He ended up growing up to look just like he looked with the old age makeup. Because <laughs> really? I've seen him, like, do the Wing Commander games in the 90s, and it looks just like old age makeup Biff. I mean, it is hysterical how accurate that was. And what they did to Crispin Glover, I can't even really tell that's makeup. I think Leah Thompson was the weakest link of all the old age makeup. The well, because face. they weren't only aging her, they were they were giving her weight. But really, I think the makeup was far above and beyond what I expect for that era of movie. Yep, it was very good. Yeah, and Zemeckis has always been big on that. I mean, certainly if you ever saw Death Becomes Her, that movie is all about the uh, prosthetics. I didn't notice it I, uh, on Doc. That's a testament, I guess, to the makeup. I, honest to God, didn't notice that he had makeup on. Whereas all these other performers who cited, I obviously did know. Um, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, that, well, okay. Hats off to the special effects team because I thought they had the choice had been that doc would look the same in any era he was in. And that was maybe even the joke. I thought that was the joke for the principal is the principal looked the same. Yeah, he did. He did. Bald that was too. that big gag was he never aged. He's like, he never had hair Clark principal. Right. Can we talk about the scene where Michael J. Fox actually travels back in time a little bit? Because... Here's my thing with this is Marty and Docker in a mall parking lot and seeing a time machine that so blew me away as a kid. And I love the whole fire tire tracks that awesome, awesome signature. Yeah, it was tremendous. Whoever thought of that should be commended. I have to say, watching this movie in 2010, seeing the scene where the fire tracks go through Doc and Marty, some horrible green screen there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, pshaw, it was fine. It's a little obvious here and there, but yes, I think the special effects overall, even though they are 25-year-old effects, they still really, really, really work well. But then you have the Libyans come in with their machine guns. Now, I love the Libyans driving a Volkswagen van. <laughs> yes. To this point, anytime we see a Volkswagen van, my wife calls it a terrorist van because of this movie. We always oh. would call out the Libyans every time we saw one of those throughout the 80s. How funny, because I didn't even remember that Libyans were in this movie. <laughs> and uh, I-, I would like to say that this is the one thing that gets dropped. <laughs> In a screenplay that doesn't drop anything, but you were saying? And I thought it was hysterical that the Libyans had a bazooka. Yeah. <laughs> when he pulls out the bazooka, I was laughing out loud. That, would, that got me. Only in 1985 would Libyans even make it into the screenplay. Like, that was topical only in a small window of time when we were having Qaddafi problems in the 80s with Reagan. But seriously, Libyans in California in a VW van with a bazooka. <laughs> <laughs> and they, the whole reason for them being there is Doc has tricked them. In order to get the plutonium he needs to run the car, he has built them a false bomb that they have presumably tried to detonate in America, a gag you could only make in the 80s as well. And now they're coming back to kill him with a bazooka. <laughs> They get them out of the story by having them drive into a photo mat. Hey, what's a photo mat? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. These stands that used to be kiosks in the middle of parking lots where you would go and drop off your rolls of film. Are we meant to think that they died? Are they meant to think that they're going to get arrested and they're knocked out? It's dropped. We don't even think about it. Yeah, Yeah. they never bring it back again. They never, other than obviously in the end, it's part of Marty racing against the clock to get back to save Doc before he's executed. That's what they mean. They're the reasons that he's, he's under pressure to be back at a certain time. 
But my one problem is, you know, I understand, yes, there's panicked moments and you don't thinking, but the whole thing is you just saw time travel and Doc Brown is hopping around 88 miles an hour. And then as soon as Marty's running from the Libyans, he's like, let's see if you bastards can do 90. I'm like, are you retarded? What happens at 88? You know what happens. You just saw it. That's a plot point in that he doesn't want to go back in time. He goes back in time by mistake, quote unquote. But when I was a child, I had the same thought. Like, he has to remember 88 miles an hour. It was kind of like a pretty hard to forget that. And yet he's trying to outrun them. And then he goes back in time and he doesn't believe it's true. I mean, yeah, that bothered me, too. It's like where he's checking the newspaper and can't believe it. I mean, I understand it's got to be disorienting to be in the 50s and all. I I can give it this. But I found it in what is a very tight script. I found that to be an oversight. And like what did with the Libyans. He knows it's a time machine. He knows it can work. But I think him forgetting it and then being so surprised he actually is there, although it's a great scene and lots of fun to watch, I agree with Arnie. It did occur to me, why did he just all of a sudden forget that information? Especially with something like 88 miles an hour. That's very catchy, you know? Hey, it's like one 92. in the morning. It was one in the morning. He had a lot going on. There were Libyans with bazookas. <laughs> there were flaming tire tracks under his feet. I mean, yes. okay. I, I can imagine why you wouldn't remember the exact number. It, you got to go with it. But okay. got to say, once we got into the 50s, the movie improves dramatically. Yes. It finds its footing. It knows what it's about. And my God, the thing that shocked me watching it now that I realized that I never had any idea watching it the three times I did in the 80s, this movie is It's a Wonderful Life. It is uh, a rethinking uh, for the 80s for the classic Frank Capra movie. And Michael J. Fox is the perfect foil for Jimmy Stewart. And it is all about, in its own way, what if I had never been born? What would this town be like if I had changed the destiny of being someone stuck in my town? Well, I don't necessarily see that because you never see what the town would have been like if he wasn't born. Right. It's 1950. He wasn't alive in the 1950s. No, no, no. I Don't take me so literally. I mean, they've reworked that. It's dealing with those notions. It is dealing with the idea of looking at someone that is oppressed by small town life and in many ways hating his existence and having the opportunity to go back and see what playing with the time frame would do. It's got a different bent on it. It's it's a different movie. I'm not saying they copied it or lifted it. I'm saying they were inspired by it. I and can that see that, yeah. Same yeah, okay. of the same feel for it. And in some ways, they fix it because, you know, Mr. Potter never gets punished. But here, Biff constantly gets shit dumped on him. So they, <laughs> they, they find a much more crowd-pleasing way of dealing with that. I was transported. When, when we're in the 50s, I'm really with the movie because its central hook is so strong. What if you could go back and see what your parents were like when they were teenagers, when you're a teenager? I mean, that's something I think everyone, if they haven't thought about it, will certainly love to entertain watching this movie. I completely agree. Yes. All of my problems with this movie fell away in the 50s, and it happened instantly. That scene where Mr. Potter and his kids are out there and they think he's an alien and the kid yells, he's mutated into human form, shoot it! I I mean, right then, they've got me. This is where a lot of the over-the-top acting from the 80s era went down. I really like Crispin Glover and even Thomas F. Wilson worked here, whereas in the 80s era, I, I wasn't quite with it. Although I have to say, I really feared that adult life was what they showed in Back to the Future in the 80s when I was 10 years old. I really <laughs> thought that there'd be a Biff Tannen still harassing me at the workplace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not. <laughs> 
I love Crispin Glover and his entry into this movie, which I think of, I guess he is in the early 80s scenes, but he doesn't make much of an impression. But his character in the 1950s is great. He has the energy for the part. It's a big part. He goes big with it and it's right. And you believe that he would be more than any other character here, someone that would act like that in the 1950s. I completely agree as well. Yeah, I really like Crispin Glover in this. I, I'm a Crispin Glover fan, although I haven't seen all of his more esoteric films that you have, Stuart. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, it's a, you know, it's, he's an actor from a different era. Like, if he had been alive in the 30s and 40s, he would have worked in a lot of comedies. They would have had a lot of things for him. You know, in the 80s, after this, what was there for him to do other than to make obscure art movies in which he has Down syndrome children pouring salt on snails? And I'm not making this up. I've seen his work. I've seen him do his readings. He travels around the country filming these ghastly over-the-top uh, movies with as many offensive imagery as he can. He's become that guy. And it's too bad because when you see this movie, you realize, wow, he could have been a, a comic genius. He could have been a Jerry Lewis in a different era. And he really commits to it, you know? He's not afraid of how it's going to make him look or how it might typecast him. He just so commits to being this awkward freak. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because in real life he is an awkward freak from the movie you just <laughs> described, Stuart. Oh, but my. he did such a great job here. And you've got to think, again, with all these larger-than-life energetic performances that for Chris McGlover to bring this different type of energy, he's not in a hurry. You know, he is very labored in his speaking and very slow and everything. And in some cases, that could really not work. In a series we're going to do in the future, Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm going to point out a performance where some Somebody doing their own thing doesn't work. Here, it fit. It just really worked well. Also, don't forget this physicality all the time. He had the hunched over. He had his arms. He would play with his hair a lot. Well, everybody was hunched over in this movie because Michael J. Fox is shorter than I am. Yes, <laughs> of course. Fair enough, but, but yeah, he has enough. a slouch that it's a really nice choice. So when he comes through at the end and, and fights Biff, when he has confidence, you see the difference physically. And it's, it's deliberate. It's wonderful. The man created a wonderful character in the 1950s. Now, I want to talk about Lee. Leah Thompson, since we're talking about performances. Leah Thompson, I had a huge crush on when I was a kid because of Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck. Oh, she was so smoking hot in that movie. Smoking hot, yes. <laughs> but here, going back and watching this, I gotta say she did really well in the 50s. She pulled off that 50s type of inflection and the, they gave her the right look. I thought she did really well. I didn't buy her in the 80s. Her voice was a little too nasal and I think she just didn't quite know what to do with it. You know, she was a very young girl back then. And But in the 50s, I thought it worked well well i liked her portraying kind of the bad girl of the 50s mm-hmm. and what a horrific premise in that okay you go back and you meet your mom and she's a horn dog now you know like <laughs> it's hard to think of your mother that way it is such an interesting oedipal <laughs> complex that marty falls himself in he stops the moment where the parents fell in love and he is now the central object of affection and how is he going to steer this ravenous woman who to seduce him she's fine with going all the way and parking in a car and drinking while she's doing it how's he gonna make her think george mcfly is cool yeah she's boy crazy and it's kind of fun to watch obviously arnie would call it setup i call it exposition of how she says she doesn't do that sort of thing when she was younger and all of a sudden she of course does she was lying to her kids or at least her memory of it is not what it actually was and it's lots of fun to see the uncomfortableness of marty with this woman who just clearly doesn't get it and i think she plays it so cleanly 
she doesn't let on at all. Talk about commitment there, I think obviously not as big as Lloyd or Crispin Glover did, but she certainly did portray this character so believably to me that I bought it. I also like that she shows different sides. She shows the romantic side, then she shows how much she doesn't like her mother. And I think she portrayed a realistic girl, if that makes any sense to either one of you. Yes, yeah. Speaking of the scene where she tries to first seduce Marty, her son, I really, out of all the setups and the payoffs and things, the one that I loved is at the very beginning where Lorraine is asking George, what is it you were doing outside our house? And George <laughs> is just like, what, Lorraine? What? And then you find out he's a peeping Tom. That got me. That one I thought was very clever. <laughs> it wasn't telegraphed the way so many of these things are telegraphed. The fact that he was up there with the binoculars watching Leah Thompson undress. And really, who doesn't want to see that? I, I was down for that. that. That joke still worked for me. I think you're right, Arnie. I think some of these things that were set up do feel telegraphed, do feel like we know it's coming. When they do appear, it's not a laughter. It's more like, ugh. But many of them uh, have a charm. And I think that this movie in particular is very successful in uh, – it's an idealized 50s, but finding the darker side of the 50s. I loved some of the 50s stuff. I don't know how realistic it was because I don't even remember the 70s. But, like, when they've got the store owner saying – colored mayor that'd be the day and all i could think of is somebody should tell him about the colored president yeah right and they set that up well i like that joke about goalie wilson exactly he's part of that opening montage with michael j fox skating through the town his running for re-election i should say and he's the one that wants to fix the clock tower which is obviously so central to the plot and themes of the story as a broken clock can I ask, there's that lady collecting money to save the clock tower, leave it broken. Who is the activist for leaving the eyesore? Who's collecting <laughs> money? Leave the big eyesore. Who does that? It was struck by lightning. Everybody's probably campaigning to get the eyesore cleaned up. That town's fallen to hell anyway. There's graffiti everywhere, tagging everything, and there's a big broken clock in the center. Who's collecting money to save the broken clock? But that is sort of the theme of the story in that you hear these different voices about there's some people that believe you shouldn't change time. Time can't be changed. It has to stay the way it is. And the people that believe that it can be fixed, changed, and altered. I mean, I think that ties in nicely with kind of what's going on in the story. I think the clock tower device, the metaphor, all of it is very, very satisfying. And the fact that they finished the climax with the lightning striking it and sending Marty back into his new future, all very satisfying. I have to agree. And Stuart, you did realize that Goldie Wilson used the exact same line to run on that Red Thomas used in 1950s, right? Progress is his middle name. No, I did not. That's good. I didn't yeah, pick up so, that one. So that also was a thing on time is the more things change, the more things change ah, the same. That's and satisfying. Also, yeah, it was very satisfying. And then you have, Arnie, you mentioned the dilapidated town. When Marty goes back into the 50s, as they set up with Doc's exposition speech about how it was all farmland as far as I could see, well, the mall was there in the 80s, which is why the town is being destroyed, right? Because no one's going to the small stores. So I think all of this stuff is commentary on the state of things in the 80s as being said throughout, but not being hit over the head. And I didn't realize any of this until I got older and realized it in real life. For me, the little things in this movie that are not hit over the head, obvious, that they're trying to set up for you, are all being said as well, and it's lots of fun. What about the whole love triangle story? That worked for me. It was a little, like Stuart said, Oedipal, but even back when I was 10, I didn't have a problem with it. I was just finding it funny. And I don't see a problem with it at all. I think it's kind of funny. She has no idea he's a son, 
so yes, we all know the backstory, we all know the stuff, but I think it really works because, again, of how much she commits to it and how much Marty commits to the repulsion of it. I mean, I honestly think it's part of the fun of it. Is it creepy in a little way? Yeah, it's a little creepy, but it's not really because it's innocent. There's nothing like they know what's going on, and that's mm-hmm. why it's fun. Right, right. No, it's. I don't mean creepy as in like icky. Well, it is, but but more <laughs> of just like it's quite it's quite a taboo that, that that's happening, and and the fact that Marty knows and she doesn't is a classic uh, romantic comedy scenario, you know, and and it it just works so well. It's a screwball comedy. So let me let me throw this out there. Marty is fading away because he interrupted his parents' meeting. If Marty had consummated the relationship with his mother and in fact impregnated his own mother, would the fetus have faded away too i don't know i don't know (laughs) wow i've never thought about this and i've seen this movie a lot of times and i never thought that once i never (laughs) thought they would consummate it's it's part of the reason why i never contemplated it but i never thought of it till this very moment but (laughs) okay but you bring up something very interesting arnie because once marty stood up to biff and lorraine wants someone to stand up for her and protect her the plan was for george to come to lorraine's rescue when marty would try to take advantage of her while they park in the car outside the dance so here's the thing he chickens out from actually filling up his mom or whatever then we learn that she would actually be okay with that (laughs) because she likes to park but in my mind i'm thinking how could you possibly even think for a moment that you would actually have the ability to try to make those kind of moves on your mom? No kidding, he chickened out, because how could you even think that? That's what's grody and creepy to me. And I've always thought <laughs> Grody! That. We are in the 80s. Yeah, I hear some regression going on there. It's a taboo, and, and like I said, it really works because it is an innocent. And the movie does a very good job of showing you innocent 50s as we like to think about it. And then just the subtle details that have a little bit more edge. And this romantic triangle, it's good at that. I'm going to posit something here. Could we have been satisfied with it if it had just ended with Crispin Glover decking Biff and then walking off? They do an extra climax in which Marty has to seal the deal by playing at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance so that they kiss. That their marriage and their whole future having children and all that is not already set in stone just by George McFly punching Biff and escorting the girl into the dance. You know, had it just been the punch, it would have been enough. But Mm -hmm. as a kid, I really liked the dance scene and the guitar playing scene. As an adult, I'm a little offended that Michael J. Fox created the black man's music. But yes, yes. (laughs) Well, Um, yeah. okay. it's a good Chuck Berry joke. Um, Very good joke. Yeah. And actually, people actually made that comment back in the day that, you know, mm -hmm. some someone got in a huff about that exact comment. I, I didn't know joke. other people had a problem with it, but I think that the dance scene worked. The The fading of the hand special effects were, again, dated, but yeah. I, I didn't mind the second part of it. And mm-hmm. I agree. It's not that it's a bad scene. It just feels like, I don't know that the history of time wouldn't have gone down that course already. You know, like, I think it was a done deal, but it is an extra layer of icing. The rocker moments. He did not have to do the uh, acid rock guitar solo, but it's fun to watch which sums up i guess my feeling about the whole movie is that it's over the top it's big it's broad and you could find complaints about it as an adult but if you put yourself in that kid 80s mentality
brutality, it totally works. Totally. Out of this whole movie, the scene where Marty gets like so into his guitar and he's like kicking things over has always made me uncomfortable, even when I was 10, that he is so out of touch with anything around him that he doesn't realize everybody's just staring at him. Perhaps it's Michael J. Fox not pulling off the performance, but that whole scene has always made me uncomfortable. It does make you uncomfortable. He's imitating all the famous rock and roll people, right? All well, I understand stuff. that, but he's doing it poorly. Well, well okay. that's because he's not a rocker. And yeah. uh, I've made that point that enough. That, yeah. <laughs> I've made that point enough. I'm going to let it go. But he is they, not a rocker. Yeah, they could have cut the entire part because if you talk about economical screenplay. It really Nothing really happens there that connects to anything but the guitar playing in the beginning. You could actually have cut that entire subplot, as you said, Stuart. But again, I'll stick by it. It's fun to watch. It's, it's kind of fun and it's entertaining. And at that point in the movie, you know, you're going to have that big ending coming up and you just finished the Bane love story. If you're ever going to have a time for like that kind of tangent, it's a perfect time. I thought it was a lot of fun to watch, but I can't argue with your point. It's you're absolutely right. It's not really needed. Now, meanwhile, we've got the parallel storyline, the subplot of Doc Brown rigging this whole thing so that lightning will strike a lightning rod instead of the clock tower and produce the 1.21 gigawatts needed to send Marty back to the future. I... I have a little problem scientifically with Doc's rig. Lightning travels <laughs> at the speed of light. What are the chances that the hook's going to hit the wire at the precise moment needed while lightning is traveling the speed of light through the cable? Wouldn't it have been easier just to have a spool of cable pre-plugged into the flux capacitor and have it unspool as the thing drove? I, the whole hook thing, I just didn't find very realistic. So you're saying hook up the actual lightning rod on the clock tower, not to the hook, but directly into the car like on a long cable. And so Marty would drive around the square at 88 miles an hour until the lightning struck at 10.04? Well, yeah, I mean, he'd probably start at 10.03. You'd only need, you know, a couple miles of cable. Interesting. Well, my big problem with, aren't there 60 seconds in a minute? How do they know exactly when the lightning was going to strike yes, at 10.04? Yes, that is my problem. That is it. it. Down to the millisecond, because it's traveling the speed of light down this cable. So how could they possibly do that? Oh, I'm going to go with it people. because it's a fun scene to watch. But yeah, really? Yeah. God. I mean, if you're going to demand that level, uh, you're, yeah, this is not the movie for you. That's, that's <laughs> very clear. This is, this is light on the science of the science fiction. It's only there to exist as a fantasy. It's a great scene, though. The music yeah. works well. It was even used in a direct TV ad. But it gives Christopher Lloyd an action scene. It gives him really something to do instead of just yell. It's also a little throwback to Harold Lloyd. I don't know if you remember he was a silent comedian i used to i watched pbs too much as a child and harold lloyd was kind of like a charlie chaplin and he had a whole bit where he's hanging off of a clock tower christopher lloyd related to harold lloyd i don't know Stuart. i should wiki this thing Stuart. what it's completely intentional he also in the beginning of the movie all the clocks there's a harold lloyd clock oh okay. a guy hanging from a thing all yeah. right i thought i was maybe reading too much into it but they knew they knew it's all right they want you to see that Okay, well, I did, and that's impressive that they and I did too. that much. Yeah, but yeah. I wasn't going to bring it up because I was like, I'm going to have to explain who Harold Lloyd is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're a nerd, Brock. I'm glad that I, you understand my nerdosity. <laughs> Arnie, I have to say thank you for bringing it up because I enjoy that kind of thinking. But, Stuart, I agree with you. It's an entirely fun thing to watch. And the first, what, 25 times I watched the movie, I don't care. But it's fun to think about the exact bits about this if it actually could work. Because, frankly, who wouldn't want this to work? 
Who wouldn't right. want to be able to travel through time? It's kind of a fantasy that really gets you so geared up that you want this to be real. But it's not. It's just a movie. And they explain just enough that you accept it. But if you go too deep into it, obviously, it's not going to work. I, I agree with that. A couple other things about that scene. Michael J. Fox is getting ready to rev his engine and travel back to the future. And the DeLorean stalls. And I realize it's just trying to keep us on the edge of our seat. But out of, again, a movie where everything is set up. When did the DeLorean start having engine problems? I'm with you on Arnie. I thought that was one little cliffhanger we didn't need. The 80s blockbuster is all about piling climax on top of climax until you just can't stand it anymore. And that was one where I was like, okay, you don't need to push it that much. And admittedly, I am nitpicking here because when you watch this scene, you've got that great score by Silvestri and it's just, you've got these great performances, the wonderful special effects. It was so cutting edge back then. And you're, you're even watching this movie as many times as I did in the eighties and watching it again. Now it's a very fun scene and my problems are completely nitpicky. And because I'm a big nerd too, everything in the fifties from the time he goes to the fifties to the time he comes back, I have very little complaint. It is a great movie for that time then when he gets back to the 80s it feels lumbered again i don't understand why he only gave himself like 10 minutes he's in a freaking time machine he could have gone back a day earlier you know i don't understand and we're going to talk a lot about this in two for people with a time machine they always seem to be in a hurry <laughs> yes. yes they never have any time it's it's part of the joke you know the only thing that i'll say about the 80s the only note i have about the altered version the 1985 that michael j fox has repaired by going back in time and giving his his dad the opportunity to write his his weaseliness is would you really hire uh, your <laughs> wife's rapist to wax your car i have to say the whole rape thing felt a little out of place in this movie it is the one time where it's like what the hell happened to this movie this light scares movie. you yes. yes it scares you when leah thompson is screaming help me in the back seat of the car and biff's like just walk away i'm terrified i'm terrified as it a is kid. a different movie at that moment but you needed to be scared you needed to push it to the max so that when crispin glover punches him you are standing up in your seat cheering for him not only that Stuart, though it had to be something that Biff was doing that George the entire time would not stand up to him for anything else, right. but it had to be something so bad that even yeah. this guy will stand up to Biff. And right. yes, I agree with you. It was very scary and it was the music underneath didn't help any. <laughs> and, and Biff's face was certainly evil enough. But in this lighthearted movie where even sex is treated lightly because the mother son thing to all of a sudden introduce Biff, who's who's kind of a buffoon. He's a bully, but you don't picture him as evil, you know, yeah. and now yeah. he's going to rape Marty's mom. Yeah. You know, that took it to a different level. And then when you see him at the end being the car waxer, you're right. It's like, well, <laughs> I would have this guy behind bars. Or at the very least, have nothing to do with him. I would not have him as my little monkey slave, which is kind of, I guess, the joke is that he is now a totally defeated, broken, as weaselly and pathetic as George McFly was in the previous 1985. Biff is in this one, all because of one punch. You wanted to know, certainly when you go back to the future, you want to know what happens to all the major players. It would not have been satisfying to have no mention of Biff. But could he have been in jail and not Uncle Joey? Uncle Joey always being in jail. Yeah, or maybe he's in jail with Uncle Joey. You could have had a throwaway line like that. I also think, if, you know, when they go back to the 80s, 
and you see the brother's in a suit and the sister has boyfriends. Those kind of things they set up, you don't need to pay those off either. But no, it's kind it's, of fun. It's very 80s. It's like, oh, if you become a yuppie, your life will be great. I mean, exactly. that's, that was very Reagan mentality there. It's and very it, they fun, certainly though. brought it to it. It works from a storytelling standpoint. I'm Absolutely. not sure politically I agree with it, but uh, there it is. My question was, they seem to be so well off that they bought Marty that truck. I have a number of issues with returning to the modified 80s. First of all, if they're so well off, why are they still living in the same shithole house? Absolutely. And second of all, if again, they're so well off that how come it's George's first book? What has George done to earn his money? Because Biff comes in, Mr. McFly, your first book is here. Well, then how did they become so successful? Wow, I've never thought of that ever. I just think that in perhaps there should have been something about Marty. You're acting different because presumably alternate timeline Marty would have been a different person because yeah. his sister and brother are different. Why would Marty have been the same? Truth be told, we don't have a lot of time to really make these distinctions. We only have enough of 1985 to know that it's a happy ending for all except for Biff and everything is on its way until Doc comes blowing in and says, I've got to take you into the future and they fly away in the outfit pimped out Florian into uh, what I suspect was never a thought out idea about what a sequel would be. Did you get that sense? This movie was meant to be standalone. It was not ever really necessarily meant to tell you what happens next. 100% correct. Ending was supposed to be a joke and nothing more. And we'll talk about that, I guess, next podcast. But sure. when I was 10, I was waiting for that sequel. I thought they were saying, hey, we're going to have a sequel in the future. And they did have a sequel in the future. And the whole time when I first saw this movie, no part of me thought they wouldn't. You know, when I saw it on videotape for the first time, because remember, I said I didn't see it in the theater until years later. It had that to be continued at the end. So I always assumed there was going to be a sequel also. But apparently, obviously, when the movie was first released, it didn't have that. It just went right to the credits. I saw this in theaters. I can never remember not seeing To Be Continued at the end, but I saw it on home video a lot more than I saw it in theaters, so I must have just overdubbed a memory. Yeah. So there's one thing I wanted to bring up. I think we've pretty much talked about this movie. If they were to make this movie today, in 2010, going back to 1980, would it work as a movie? Because the differences between 85 and 55 seem so vast. Well, I remember 1980 and i'm remembering 2010 i don't think it's that big of a difference it wouldn't work at all you would have to do something else i was thinking about that exact same thing when i was watching it not when they are going to remake this they reboot everything these days and death and nothing is a sacred cow nothing will go untouched back to the future the remake mark my words universal will pull it out in the next three years what will they do? I know that it can't work because the difference between pre-sexual revolution and post-sexual revolution in America is enormous. That is an enormous amount to play with. Kids from the 1980s and kids now, it's not nearly as dramatic a difference. My guess is that they would do something with racial politics because that certainly changed. You would have it, I don't know. Even that doesn't seem that dramatic. But if a, a black person were to go back into the 1980s, would it be... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, I mean, yeah, it's different, but it's not It's not like he'd be going back to the 1880s and, yeah. you know. If you remake the movie, why can't you make it both as a period piece, be 1985 and make commentary that wasn't made about the time of 1985 now with the hindsight, and then go back to the 50s and make more commentary there? 
You could, but mm. I mean, I don't think it's going to work for current audiences as much. Yeah, I agree. When you oh, remake right. something, you're updating it for that new generation, and and they're not going to relate to a 1985 life. No cell phones, no internet. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's about all there is, though. We got cell phones, internet, and if you made it so that they went back to 80s, you'd be on the declining years of disco. So maybe some bell bottoms and leisure suit jokes could possibly be drawn into it. But it just doesn't seem as dramatic. You'd still have the Oedipal humor and you'd still have some paradoxes. But the dramatic differences in the city, just I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the joke would have to be that the kid doesn't know what to do because they go to the internet for everything or their cell phone for everything and that they have to physically walk around and find answers (laughs) would be the challenge. (laughs) So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Back to the Future? Stuart. I do. I liked it then. I like it now. It is a part of my childhood. Going back to it is like opening a time capsule. I, Having not seen it in over 20 years, it reminded me of who I was then, and that perfectly ties into what the movie's doing. So for that reason alone, for the nostalgia value alone, it's good. Is it as funny or as magical to me now? No. It would particularly be great if you have children and they want to know about you and what you were like growing up. To show them this movie and experience it with them, I think, would be quite a thing to do. So, as a keepsake, timesake of the 80s, the 50s, and my childhood, it's a recommend. Cool. Arnie. Stewart said it's a great movie for parents to watch with children. I agree this is a great movie for children to watch. I loved it as a child. I'm just not liking it as much as an adult. Do I recommend this movie? Who am I recommending it to? Who hasn't seen it? Who's listening to this? I want to know. I want to find that one person and see if they're sitting on the edge of their seat. Do I add this to my Netflix queue? Let's see what they say. But, you know, yes, it's a good movie. It's a well-done movie. I'm nitpicking it to hell. It is not the end-all, be-all that I thought it was in 1985. In 1985, I worshipped this movie. This time, I've seen it so often, I see all of its holes, and I'm nitpicking it to death. But yeah, it's a good movie. I give it a very strong recommend to you one person who hasn't seen it yet. Is it going to be relatable to today's audience? I don't know how much they're going to get some of it. Even I, I don't remember this is heavy actually being in my vernacular. I thought they were trying to insert something into the vernacular, honestly. Uh, I don't remember it being around either. So, yeah, I recommend this movie. Everything I said was a nitpick. The overall effect of this movie is a positive one. We've seen far worse in this series. I'm going to mirror those two sentiments. I do think this is a family movie, although they use the word asshole (laughs) and they drop a couple of uh, shits here and there. It is kind of a family movie, and I think it's the kind of movie that families can watch together. And I do enjoy watching this movie. I do recommend this movie. I think it has aged pretty well. I think we see a lot of movies. If you ever go back and watch movies that you liked as a kid, they're not enjoyable to watch now. They just don't work at all. This one still works, and it's a lot of fun to watch, and you get swept up in the story when you watch it. And that's the sign of a good movie. And so, yes, I absolutely recommend this. And Arnie's right. If you haven't seen this before... (laughs) I feel sorry for you having listened to this entire thing and then listening to all us talk about it. Watch the movie. It's entirely worth your time. And I would like to do an addendum. As you said, movies from our childhood that don't hold up. I've recently gone back and watched another movie I worshipped in the 80s, Goonies. And yes, this movie holds up so much better than so many other movies I liked in the 80s. That Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. Did you like what I said there? It stood the test of time. Did you like that? Did you just get that comment in there, guys? Okay. 
Well, I want Did to you thank get you my all. groan? <laughs> <laughs> Let me do to... it again. Let me do it again. <laughs> I think that's the same groan I used during the line, Lorraine, if you ever have a kid like that, I'll disown you. Or how about Jailbird Joey's white and black striped shirt? Well, he's in the better get used to these bars, kid, and who the hell is yeah, John F. Kennedy? the black and white striped shirt was what put it over the top. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review on iTunes so other people can find us as well. And you can leave us an email or perhaps participate in our forums. You can find a link to on our homepage. If you like this retrospective series, please try our other ones. We have retrospectives for Friday the 13th, Halloween, Terminator, Saw. You can find all of our past podcast retrospectives at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter so you can be informed every time a new podcast comes out and come to the Facebook page and leave your opinions of these movies we're watching on our wall. Excellent. So, guys, until next time... For Back to the Future Part 2, thanks a lot. Glad one of us is finding the, all these time lines <laughs> funny. Get back in time. Get back in time. Get back Ropes? Thank you for joining us for this episode of Now Playing's Back to the Future Movie Retrospective. My God, has it been that long? If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review for us on iTunes or post about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media avenue of choice. Say hi to your mom for me. You can find more Now Playing Retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Series include Halloween, Saw, Friday the 13th, Star Trek, Terminator, and others. So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, and is not affiliated with Universal Pictures, Amblin Entertainment, or U-Drive Productions. Back to the Future is copyright and trademark, Universal Pictures, and no infringement is intended. I have seen Taxi. I've he's uh, uh, when what's his name again? Christopher, Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd. When Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What's this movie you were wow. watching? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Something about a car, time travel. Uh, oh yes. Break perhaps. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Arnie, come down from the hate tower. So on, and someone's talking about stolen platoon. Pl- 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 uh. Someone's talking about stolen platoon. Uh, why They're can I not say petunias? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it's going to go under the gag reel now. You damn right. <laughs> Get right. it? Timeline. Oh, that's he, heavy. He, he's he's finding it funny enough for all of us. <laughs> all right, I gotta go take a piss. I'll be right back. All right, I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm gonna take a piss to you, bite. Maybe I will too. Bye.